Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises once said, Freedom is indivisible. As soon as one starts to restrict it, one enters upon a decline on which it is difficult to stop. For those of you who are listening, I'm going to ask you later to go to a website called usdebtclock.org. For those of you who are watching this on YouTube, you're probably already familiar with this, but I want to just start the uh, podcast today by taking a look at this. Now, you can see it's like a giant calculator with a bunch of numbers, and a lot of them are in red, which usually doesn't mean that's not a positive thing. And you can see that the, the main one on the left I want to spend time on is the U.S. national debt, which currently sits at $30 trillion, and you can see it just continually goes up. In fact, I figured it out. In the time it takes me to take a breath, that number increases anywhere from maybe sixty dollars to $75,000, which I guess is just the interest that continues to accumulate on this debt. Some of you may remember that movie, The Matrix, you know, when Morpheus sits down with Neo and he's got his palms open with the two pills, the red pill and the blue pill. And the blue pill is kind of, you just keep going on with your life and, you know, ignorance is bliss. And then the red pill is the one that opens up sort of the uh, door to uh, the awareness. And I think Morpheus says something along the lines of you get to go down and see just how deep the rabbit hole goes. I pretty much was the blue pill guy for a number of years when people would ask me, what about the U.S. uh, the debt? And I'd say, well, you know, what about it? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, when I got licensed, securities licensed the first time, the Dow was around 3,800. And today, as we sit here in, uh, you know, July of uh, 2022, you know, it's over 30,000. So the debt didn't matter, at least to the type of people I was dealing with. But this debt has caused a lot of problems. And so when the United States went off of the gold standard back in 1971, What that effectively allowed the government to do was to print money as much as they wanted. Gold-backed currency-backed system, for those of you who don't know, just simply means you can only issue as much money as you have gold or, you know, in some whatever other asset there is to back it. There's a limit, which also affixes a value. We are on what's called a fiat money system now. What that simply means is, is the market forces dictate the value of the currency. And, of course, as Russell Napier in a previous episode explained those values can be easily manipulated. And so what has also happened over the years is the wealth disparity. And what that means is simply the people that can afford to borrow and accumulate assets get wealthier. And as a result, you know, we live in a world now, at least in the United States, where about 30% of the assets are controlled by 1% of the population. And the lower 50% of the population only control about 6%. So you have this huge gap that's formed, and there's other consequences that have resulted since uh, 1971. Productivity's increased, wages have not kept up. And so that's where we find ourselves today. And so the question really is, is how do we get here and where is this headed? Because I don't think anybody that's got you know even a, a modicum of, of rationality would be convinced that this $30 trillion and probably over 31 by the time this airs is ever going to get paid off. You know, there is a point where there's a reckoning. And now that interest rates have started going up, that appears that day, I feel like is pretty much on our doorstep. So today's guest is an expert on what has been referred to as the Great Reset. 
and I've read a lot of articles. There's a lot of people that speak about this. He's probably, in my opinion, certainly the most educated and really the most level-headed. And so today's guest is Professor Michael Rechtenwald. He's authored 11 books, including titles such as Thought Criminal, published in 2020, Google Archipelago, which was published in 2019, and 19th Century British Secularism, which was published in 2016. Uh, He worked as a professor at New York University for 11 years from 2008 until 2019, and he is considered a pundit and champion of free speech against all forms of authoritarianism, totalitarianism, and particularly political correctness. So he and I are kindred spirits in that regard. Professor Rechtenwald has appeared on a number of mainstream network talk shows, on syndicated radio shows, and does frequent interviews on YouTube channels and podcasts. I found him by way of his essays, and he's published his academic and scholarly essays have appeared in a number of publications, including the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, Academic Questions, Endeavor, the British Journal for the History of Science, International Philosophical Quarterly, and the Hillsdale College Monthly Speech Digest called Imprimis. He is also a regular contributor to the economic education organization, the Mises Institute, which is how I became acquainted with him. So it's my pleasure to welcome live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Professor Michael Rechtenwald. Professor, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I thought the best place to start would be if you could explain for anybody who's not familiar or maybe is familiar with the term Great Reset but really doesn't know what it means, what exactly does that refer to? Yeah, the Great Reset is a package of plans uh, that refers to the World Economic Forum's uh, agenda to reset capitalism from so-called shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. And that is, on the economic front, that's what it represents, stakeholder capitalism being a system that not only considers shareholders in the operations of corporations, but also so-called stakeholders who are basically the customers, workers, uh, the community, society at large, the global community, etc., no longer, according to uh, Klaus Schwab, the uh, founder and chair of the World Economic Forum, no longer should the free market be operative, that we must counter what he calls neoliberalism, which is just a stand-in for free market capitalism. That must be overthrown and replaced with this stakeholder capitalism. And uh, from there, all kinds of things emerge. So some will say this you know, goes back to the basic battle between good and evil that you can read about in the Bible. You know, I've got my own theory that I I feel like perhaps it has its roots in the third iteration of the the Federal Reserve in 1913. You know, I had a guest on, Russell Napier. You may be familiar with him. He's an economist over there in in Scotland. He, you know, kind of from our conversation, it sort of starts with the the burge of the age of debt, which came out of the Asian financial crisis. And instead of learning from the dangers of leverage, it just became, you know, something that was abused. And then there's the change in the gold standard in 1971. So curious in your thoughts on that. There's definitely a connection to the banking industry, and in particular, the repudiation of uh, Breton Woods and the, of course, asset-less-based banking, simply fiat currency, and the enormous debt that's accrued on the basis of this, effectively, you know, the, the unrestrained printing of money is certainly uh, a big factor here. Some would argue that the Great Reset is a means by which the elite may recoup their debt by uh, staving off and starving off certain populations from their consumption patterns and standards of living. 
I think it is, uh, it really stems also from the climate industrial complex and the whole green movement and, uh, you know, the global warming catastrophism that has been basically in place since 1971. These climate catastrophists have been making their way into businesses, into corporations, into banks, into asset managers for some time now. And so now they have a very firm grip on the economic levers. Uh, This is no longer some grassroots movement. They have a firm grip on the economic levers, and they're entrenched, deeply entrenched, in all of the major corporations and asset managers and banks, frankly. So would you say, because when I think about this, it seems like this stakeholder capitalism is really a way for these corporations to subvert the will of the people. And now you have the corporations that are impacting the decisions of government rather than, you know, the voter. Is, I mean, is that a simple way to put it? That's one aspect of what takes place because what this is is a kind of extra-governmental or pre-governmental arrangement whereby instead of passing legislation to enforce climate policies, the corporations and the banks and asset managers are leading the way and they're basically they're not precluding or preempting uh, legislation they're they're effectively getting out in front of it they are effectively pushing this agenda so that then the legislation will follow and they'll already be compliant uh so they'll be compliant before any legislation which would probably less be less restringent than the actual stakeholder metrics that are being applied are That is to say, these companies are previewing and actually advancing this agenda without legislative bodies voting on anything. And in fact, it really is a an undemocratic process, especially in terms of shareholders, but also employees, customers, everybody, because all these costs will increase enormously based on these practices. As Milton Friedman put it, this is just a It's a very undemocratic process whereby the social responsibility of the corporation comes before anything else, and this represents a tax, in effect, on everybody concerned. Which we're seeing manifest itself now. Yeah. You made a good point, you know, about these companies abusing their responsibility in a sense to shareholders. And this comes through, I read something about proxy votes and how like BlackRock is probably one of the biggest offenders, I suppose you'd say. I mean, they're like $10 trillion company. They have all these passive ETF investments that are tied to indexes, but they're using their shareholder clout like Vanguard to influence and force these companies to do things. I mean, is that that's absolutely true. And they're actually smuggling ESG scored companies into their major portfolios in order to bolster the performance of the ESG abiding stocks uh, such that they basically inflate the value of these ESG uh, indexed companies. This is one way that they're doing this. They're smuggling this in. And of course, your, your listeners will know what ESG stands for, which is environmental, social and governance scores. The index, which is being used and applied to major corporations and basically the stock market, I think it's going to be utterly and totally universalized and made, you know, completely uh, global and probably mandatory in the near future. 
Could I ask you to explain, again, believe it or not, I know you're immersed in this and I know enough to be dangerous, but not everybody knows what ESG is. Do you mind just kind of elaborating on that whole idea? The ESG index is the mechanism by which stakeholder capitalism is being implemented. And E stands for environmental, S stands for social, and G stands for governance. So the environmental score is basically determined on the basis of how well does the company abide by sustainability measures. That is, do they have a net zero plan? Are they looking at reducing their carbon footprint? And are they otherwise environmentally sound or unsound? That's supposedly what it means. I'll go into some of the problems with this later if you want. The social stands for social governance. Um, Social justice, I would say, really. It is a social justice index that really is about how well is your company represented by minorities and of all types, gender, sexual orientation, racial minorities, and so forth. So this is really, they're scoring companies on their diversity, equity, and inclusion metrics. It sounds like affirmative action on steroids. <laughs> it's, it's affirmative action now being implemented through the stock exchange. It's incredible. Then governance it has to do with, you know, the human rights qualifications of a corporation. Also, I think, complicity or their compliance with the government, with the state. How well do they abide by state dictates? And, you might say, how well do they enforce or even parrot official state narratives? Okay. Now, I'm sure there are some who would hear all this and think, well, geez, you know, environmental and... What's the problem? What's so bad about it? Well, first of all, without adjudicating the climate science, which I could talk about a little bit later, what this represents is a cartelization scheme, a kind of monopoly scheme, whereby compliant companies are basically fed capital while the non-compliant are essentially starved of capital investment. This goes from not only asset managers, but also banks. So it's a way of establishing a cartel. I call it the woke cartel, because in every way it represents how well do they abide by woke dictates. And so it is extremely authoritarian and some would say totalitarian in the sense that it abrogates property rights by virtue of the fact that it demands that you can't do with your own company what you wish. You must abide by these dictates and pressures and must conform. You must behave as we wish or you will not get investments. You will not get, you will not be in portfolios. You'll be left behind. Uh, this was said very clearly in the recent WEF annual meeting 2022 in May. Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America, said, basically, if you don't meet the certain bar, a stakeholder bar, an ESG bar, you will not get loans. You will not get capital investment. I mean, it's that clear. So I think it's a cartel scheme to demarcate the woke from the unwoke, to starve the the latter out of capital investments and effectively to monopolize the market by virtue of driving competitors out of the system. It's almost like the compliant versus the non-compliant. And so this is where, okay, I know this is going to sound really out of left field. So I I got this thing where I started binge watching old episodes of Adam 12. (laughs) 
I grew up in Southern California, and so San Fernando Valley, and that's where they filmed that show. And so I was getting a little nostalgic. You know, we we moved about a year and a half ago out of California. And so I'm watching these shows, and I'm kind of looking for like things that might look familiar. You know, one of the things I noticed was that in the scenes, there's all these small businesses. You don't see like the Home Depots. You might see a gas station or something, but and now you think about it today in small business, which are the ones who can act independently. I mean, I know I've run my company for 30 years and it's just four employees at this point. I mean, we're tiny, but, you know, I'm able to circumvent a lot of these mandates, you know, they keep coming down, particularly yeah. in California when I was based there. But I think that's a threat that I'm guessing, and maybe this leads to another point. Okay, so let me ask you this. How did all this subtly, because truthfully, I don't even remember the great term Great Reset I mean, that's like kind of a new thing, at least to me, in the last couple of years. ESG is certainly, you know, fairly recent. But clearly, like you said, this has roots at least back to 71. How does all this stuff happen to get to a point now where we're, you know, $30 trillion in debt, where, you know, we've got this wealth disparity, all these consequences of all that? I mean, how did this happen under our nose? Are we all just so happy going on with our lives and, you know, living that we just didn't care? Okay, so really what happened is we have 50 to 60 years of climate activism very early on penetrated major institutions and not simply, it didn't simply come from some grassroots movement. We had an early introduction of climate catastrophism to corporations and corporations adopted this belief that, you know, CO2 emissions, and first it was uh, sulfur, sulfur dioxide, they thought was causing acid rain. And then right on the heels of the acid rain movement, they drove the climate change or global warming uh, movement into the consideration of corporate boardrooms. It became a sweeping but incremental process uh, by which these precepts were adopted. Then they become over the last uh, 20-some years, they've been institutionalized to the point where we now have an ESG score and we have an official doctrine of stakeholder capitalism that is embraced by almost all the world's major corporations and banks and asset managers. So it was incremental, but we didn't notice it was happening until the water grew so high that the dam burst, and here we are. Because this is where that conspiracy word comes in for some. And I've had people that will say it would be too difficult to coordinate this global effort. And I think this is where you go back to the World Economic Forum. I mean, I think it, there was a point where all the G7 leaders were all, what, disciples of uh, the Klaus Schwab movement in one form or fashion. How do you get somebody to, if you're to, if somebody were to say, you know, this sounds like an extreme group, or as you mentioned, grassroots effort, you know, people that... Yeah, they've got wacky ideas, but, and yeah, there's this ESG stuff going on, but somehow either unwilling to or unable to connect this stuff to something that's an actual threat. You know, what do you offer a person, you know what I'm saying, who's just not really able to take that leap? Sure. Well, the first thing I would say is visit the WEF's website and look, search for their corporate partners and look at the list of corporate partners that are yep. completely pledged to the mission. This reads like a who's who of corporate America and world corporate domination. We're talking about everything in China and the United States and Europe. All these major corporations and banks are partners with the WEF. So that's how they've coordinated. They've enlisted these partners into the process 
and drawn them in to the practices that they're implementing. But why would a company, a wealth management company that exists ostensibly for the, the purpose of helping investors, you know, the retail people I deal with build wealth, support an organization and affiliate with one who has a stated mission they'll own nothing by 2030 and be happy? I, no one's answered it. I, I can answer it Please. for you because <laughs> what this means is you'll own nothing and be happy, but this is only because the production and distribution of goods will be controlled by a particular woke cartel who will own everything and be very happy. This is a means of driving out competitors. This is why they're enrolled. And they want to have the first mover advantage of being on in the front of this. And so once you get this ball rolling and you get these people that are trying to be the first movers who then ha take advantage of this market, you start to drive all the competition either out or in. And so it's just collected this enormous momentum going now, and it's really almost unstoppable. We're looking at an enlistment process, enrolling these allies into this creed, and then getting them to adopt various practices along ESG lines and along other stakeholder lines. The World Economic Forum has their own stakeholder criteria or metrics that their partners have signed on to, then the UN is a huge player here. The UN has uh, the principles for responsible investment, and these principles are utterly and totally about ESG. There are six principles of responsible investment. Every one of them reads like, we will do this, we will do that, we will do this, we will abide by ESGs, we will make sure our customers abide by ESGs. We will try to preach the ESG gospel wherever we go. We'll cooperate with our competitors in order to push the ESG scores. There's 4,700 signatories to the principles for responsible investment. These include all of the world's major asset managers, almost all the major asset holders, asset service managers, and other types of businesses I really don't know much about, but effectively, this is like the entire financial community. This is so widespread, it's unbelievable. Okay, I'm glad you brought up the website because that's sort of my filter now. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime anybody emails me or calls me, that's the first thing I check. Who am I dealing with? And I know, you know, in the, in the, the world of financial advisors, I'm a sand grain on a huge, enormous beach, but you have to stand for something, you know, or you'll fall for anything, as that saying goes. And you can't really stop doing business with these companies because even, you know, you go to some fund company or some investment firm that's not directly connected, they still own shares of all these companies. They're so tightly woven together. As much you learn from the companies that are signed on to this as industries that aren't. And I don't think I'm incorrect in saying there isn't a single major airline that's involved with this which kind of yeah. leads to some of their other stuff about, you know, rent everything, it'll be delivered to you by drone. Right. You did an interview on geopolitics and empire. Yeah. And I, rem and I forget the host name, but he always talks about the algorithmic smart city ghetto or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, right. You know, where those of us, settlements, I think is what the UN calls it. They call them settlements. I mean, that sounds appealing. But yeah. in addition to the UN, are there any other organizations or institutions like Religion, you know, particularly large churches, they don't seem to appear to be involved. But I have to think that any organization that exhibits a great amount of control over 
its members or its population, would it'd be hard to imagine them not having some connection. The Catholic Church has very deep connections with uh, this globalist agenda. They have basically signed on to this notion of stakeholder capitalism. They're entirely behind it. They believe that it represents the just operation of corporations and that it represents the kind of wealth distribution that uh, the Pope, in particular, Francis, would like to see underway. I would say the Catholic Church and then where these other churches stand with reference to it mostly are compliant by default. They're not resisting this and they're not trying to uh, alert anybody about it. In fact, they wouldn't probably think it would be at all problematic. So, yeah, there's a whole woke Christianity that's developed, and uh, that has penetrated uh, most of the major denominations, frankly, leaving only uh, some outliers, frankly, that have uh, resisted. Other than that, the other institutions, the whole academia is entirely involved. Uh, They've already been involved in divesting from fossil fuels and other supposedly harmful carbon-based energy products. Of course, there are other groups that are feeding into this, their rhetoric and their beliefs that they've been building for years, like the Club of Rome. These all sound like conspiracies, even mentioning these groups. They exist, and they do things. Club of Rome, the Bilderberg Group, basically any climate Mm. activist group is involved. Okay, most of my clients are kind of, you know, the people that have lived their lives, worked hard, saved, done everything right. And certainly people's lives have been affected in the last two years with the COVID and all that. But I don't know that the pain has gotten great enough. And so to me, the high inflation, gas prices, you know, I mean, the markets, you know, I'm not an economist, but I've been doing this long enough to know that the movement doesn't make sense. You know, there's just a lot of things that don't make sense, which has been good because it's helped me wake up, you know, and stop dealing with these companies. You know, I did a thing, just side note. One day I went on all these major money managers, you know, their websites and every one of them has the CSG thing. I mean, it's almost like different colors, different graphics, but the same coordinated message. And, you know, that was eye opening. And so that's why I found guys like Alex Craner and Monaco and trend following and things that really remove some of that to the extent you can. But because more and more people are seeing it. But when do you really think, is there a tipping point where all of a sudden this becomes reality or is it, does that just going to be too late? Oh, I think that the gas price crisis is going to exacerbate this, and people are going to notice that these costs are due to divestment from fossil fuel producers, oil companies, gas companies, coal, and so forth, so that you're going to see you know, energy prices continue to rise to the point of real serious pain and people's lifestyles will be affected dramatically such that they'll have to curtail other spending. And uh, then there's the possibility that, you know, price of meats are going to be uh, exorbitant because these are supposedly uh, cattle, for example, are climate change gas producers. And also they consume a tremendous amount of energy. They're even putting masks over cows' mouths and faces to because they burp and, and they, uh, when they burp, they release some sort of greenhouse gases. So we're seeing now with the farmers in uh, Holland in revolt, we're going to see more of this and it's going to start affecting food 
to the point where we may have shortages and also just exorbitant costs. And so then they're introducing already this idea of eating bugs. Nicole Kidman was just on uh, Vanity Fair. They did a video. Vanity Fair put out a uh, video of Nicole Kidman eating insects, most of them so disgusting looking. I, I mean, I don't know how she stomached it. But basically playing Marie Antoinette, saying, let them eat bugs. Look, I'll even eat some first. So all of this is going to reach a point where there's going to be the tolerance level is going to peak, and this will cause a huge backlash. You bring up a good point. It's not like people are hiding this. I mean, right. you got this uh, the CEO of Pfizer at the conference in 2018 talking about the electric pills and how the insurance companies can monitor whether you're taking your medication, and he talks about the applications of compliance. Yeah. This is somebody who runs a major pharmaceutical company. Then you've got this Julie Grant, who's the Australian e-safety commissioner. This just happened a month or two ago, talking about recalibrating human rights, including freedom of speech. Then you've got this gal, the, the, the famous one, the parliament in Denmark, Ida Alkin, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it, that talked about the oh, nothing. And this is the thing, you know, it's so easy to just pretend like these things all just don't connect. But then you have this Brian, this advisor, economic advisor to Joe Biden, Brian Deese, talking about, you know, they ask him, how long are people going to have to suffer through high gas prices? Well, the future of the, this is about, I'm quoting, this is about the future of the liberal world order. We have to stand firm. And of course, this guy was in charge of sustainability at BlackRock. So I don't know what people need to realize that there's something going on here. So let me ask you this, kind of like I said, I want to put you on the spot. Where do you think this all ends up? Well, Everything is being incrementally introduced, and we're going to have incremental increases in prices and technologies that are going to continually being rolled out that are going to monitor, surveil, and basically data tag every move you make and every, uh, even your very thoughts, possibly, according to Yuval Harari, one of the advisors to Klaus Schwab. I think that we're going to see a tipping point whereby people can't take it anymore. And then it could uh, evolve into mass demonstrations. Like we're already seeing in Holland demonstrations from different sectors, but then it could become a mass demonstrations of people just suggesting that we know this is all being manipulated. This is not nature. This is not the economy's natural operations. This is all manipulated, and this is all about interventionism by the states and by these corporations as well, who are, I consider, to be part of the state. In effect, this is all being coordinated and manipulated, and therefore, this could be changed, and, and therefore, we're not taking it, and that's where it could end. Okay, and so I have this idea, and I'm not a a historian or, or a guy who knows the Constitution, but I know, you know, a pretty common knowledge that income taxes, federal income taxes are illegal, that the Congress is charged with an article, I got it written down here somewhere, one, Section 8 of the Constitution, you know, effectively gives Congress the responsibility, ascribes them responsibility to a fixed value to the currency. And so I have this, and then you're probably familiar uh, with uh, Harvey Bernard and Nassara, you know, and these ideas of economic, I guess you'd call it monetary revolution. I think it's clear there. This can't continue. You know, you can't just keep printing money and lowering rates. You know, that's kind of what I think's bubbling all this up. Right. And I'm just asking if you have any theories, just personal opinions that you're comfortable sharing that about how this could shift to, you know, ultimately get us to a, a new way of operating economically and 
Well, I think what's going to happen is the Great Reset is going to make very clear that this kind of interference in the market is disastrous. And this could have a big effect actually rolling back even other social democratic or, frankly, socialist policies that have been instituted. People are going to see the contrast because they're going to see the kinds of uh, effects of this kind of economic interventionism. And these effects are going to be so dramatic that they may then see finally that the market, the free market, is the way to make wealth and distribute it is the best mechanism for doing so. And that anything other than that really abrogates or uh, diminishes social welfare for everybody, not just the middle class, but also the poor. Uh, It actually exacerbates poverty and actually creates it. People are going to see that all these policies are creating the poverty that they're meant, supposedly meant to allay. And that will strike people very clearly at some point. You know, one of my personal heroes is Robert Kennedy. And I've read just about everything there is to read about him. And, you know, he's held up as this this liberal icon. But, you know, the reality was, is he was the guy who was talking about, you know, you don't welfare, all it does is replace the father in the home. I mean, they saw the evils of all this. And, and, you know, of course, you see what happened to him. Any final thoughts, Professor? I just, I got to tell you, I started the introduction about how grateful I am that I've run across your work, because again, there's a lot of extremes to this whole topic. And I've always found your writing to be fair and educated and, and based on, you know, fact, you know, rather than just throwing things out. Any just final thoughts? A lot of that goes on, and this is what muddies the waters about this topic. Get a lot of unhinged opinion without actually investigating the actual material. So final thoughts, uh, I would say, are there are some things we can do to oppose this. First of all, and you're already doing it, is divest from ESG funds, if possible. It's so difficult to extricate funds from each other and mutuals and otherwise, but then try to have voting rights uh, on your funds to be involved in that. And then maybe we could create a consortium of stockholders who are able to band together and oppose this and you know refuse to invest in these ESG abiding corporations and through these ESG pushing funds like uh, BlackRock, uh, Vanguard, uh, USB, Carlyle Group, all of them. I mean, you know, just go down the whole list. They're all in it. Two, I would say we can push legislators, if possible, to recognize what's going on and to Stop this extra legislative practice of instituting laws in effect without them being laws, technically speaking. These are breaches of property rights, of the property rights of everybody, including stockholders, but also everybody else, consumers. This is a breach of our rights. We don't want to pay for this nonsense. This is putting enormous pressure on the economy, enormous pressure. So that's to, I would say, practice the free market in your own life. Try to keep the free market alive through parallel structures, economic and social structures of support and networking. This is not like leftist mobbing, but rather individuals networking together to keep free market principles alive. We may have to be the remnant for future generations, if nothing else. And then also refuse a CBDC, central bank digital currency. Refuse it. Refuse the digital identity, which is also coming down the line. 
refuse the internet of bodies, which will put data tags on all of your organs and even possibly even your brain. So those are some of the things we can do to avert this catastrophe and survive it if, in fact, it takes place, continues to be rolled out. We'll have to survive it as well if it continues to succeed as it has. I don't have a silver bullet for this. I wish I did. Or I'd, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I'd fire it, but um, we can only do what we can do. And I don't tell people exactly what to do because I believe in individual free will and self-determination. So it isn't going to be some kind of a collectivist mob in the street, I don't believe. I think it's going to be playing it smarter than that. And for anybody who thinks, you know, the bugs, all you got to do is go to the World Economic Forum and read some of the quotes from these people who are all in responsible positions throughout the world. These are things people are saying. I mean, I, there was another one about the clothes. You get your clothes, have a, uh, a tracker so they can be recycled. Right. And the other side of it is, of course, um, is you're being tracked. Your actions are being constantly monitored. And anyway, so... I think awareness is, is a good place to start. And again, I just appreciate your time, Professor. And I, I will leave you with this threat that I'll be reaching out to you again okay. in the not-so-distant future. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. I hope your audience stands firm and uh, stay strong. Thank you very much. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.